Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, TraumaCast series. I'm your host, Dr. Babak Sarani, Associate Professor of Surgery at the George Washington University Hospital. Joining us today is Dr. Adel Hader, Associate Professor of Surgery at the Johns Hopkins Medical Center. Dr. Hader published an article titled, Association Between Helicopter Versus Ground Emergency Medical Services and Survival for Adults with Major Trauma in the April 18, 2012 issue of JAMA. In brief, the study evaluated over 223,000 patients and found that patients transported by helicopter to level 1 or level 2 trauma centers had improved survival to discharge after controlling for numerous confounders. Indeed, the statistical analysis of the paper is what makes its findings robust and probably resulted in part in its publication in JAMA. We will be discussing this paper and possible reasons underlying the findings with Dr. Hader today. Welcome, Dr. Hader. Let's start by asking you to briefly summarize the history of helicopter transportation for civilian trauma victims in the last 20 years or so. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Sarani. It's a pleasure to talk about this very, very important uh, topic. Uh, but before I begin, I just want to give a shout out to uh, the first author of the study. His name is Dr. Samuel Galvano. And Sam uh, was our uh, uh, critical care fellow. He is a trauma anesthesiologist. And the real sophisticated analysis that you're talking about was actually part of his PhD thesis. He did a PhD in health policy. Uh, and this, um, all of this uh, work was, uh, uh, or this highfalutin statistics, <laughs> um, was part of his PhD. And uh, being on his, on his thesis committee, I can tell you, uh, I have never seen a more better prepared PhD candidate. And of course, he f uh, just jumped through it flying colors. So it was just a pleasure to work on this project with him. Uh, this, uh, you know, looks at helicopter transport. And if you think of trauma care and you close your eyes, what's the first thing you think of? It's a shiny helicopter coming to pick up that injured patient. And so helicopters have really been the iconic symbol of the ultimate in trauma care. And the history really comes from, remember MASH, the TV show? Sure. Uh, you know, those balloon, those kind of bubble helicopters with patients really literally hanging out, um, you know, uh, back in the late 1950s. Uh, that's where it was really shown that, you know, helicopters, you get the people out quickly and bring them in and their uh, survival improved. Uh, and then in the 1970s, early 70s is really when it was started in America uh, with, uh, you know, I guess some people in Mississippi tried it and then Denver had its uh, life flight. Um, and uh, that's really where the genesis has occurred. Uh, but over the past uh, maybe 10, 15 years, there have been at least uh, seven or eight studies, good studies, two of which really showed, uh, one by uh, Greg Newgard and the other by Dr. Frey, that showed that, you know, potentially the improve, there is no real improvement in survival and that helicopters' uh, outcomes are similar to ground medical transport. Uh, although there were five other studies that suggested uh, that, well, there is improvement in survival, especially for things like head injury or situations where patients were intubated and so on. So there were at least a couple of important studies which suggested that uh, you know, this iconic symbol of our trauma care may not be uh, what we thought it was. And that's why we thought it was very in, uh, important to do this study. 
Oh, and that's exactly right, because uh, I remember as a uh, fellow in training, and even before that as a resident, I kind of heard it both ways. There were the helicopter believers and the helicopter non-believers, and you kind of always knew that this is this topic's like religion. You just simply shouldn't bring it up. <laughs> so I was, uh, I was very happy to see your paper, um, and we'll talk about some of the details. Well, the other issue is, of course, uh, which gets a lot of press as you're bringing it up with this whole religious thing, uh, is the safety issues that over the past uh, maybe 10 years or so, there have been you know, almost 70, more, 70 or so recorded uh, um, crashes of one type or the other with almost 80 people uh, dying. So of course, th- there is that safety issue. I mean, when, you know, people really do put their lives on the line when they go fly to pick somebody up. Somebody up. Uh, and that's why the people who go do this work are, are really are, are nothing short of heroes. And then, of course, there's a cost issue. I mean, this is a very expensive way to go pick somebody up. So it was very important to um, really understand the comparative effectiveness of helicopter ground transport versus uh, helicopter transport versus ground transport. All right. So that's an excellent segue into the, your actual study. So let's talk about the study's design and how you went about doing it. Well, um, what this uh, study did is that it, it uh, uh, queried the National Trauma Data Bank. And what we looked at were patients who were admitted into the National Trauma Data Bank between the years of 2007 and 2009. Um, We wanted to look at patients who had significant injuries, so we only looked at patients who had an injury severity score of uh, 16 and above. So right off the bat, these are uh, patients who have severe injuries. That's that's who we're looking at here. Um, And we looked at about um, 100 and... uh, uh, 60,000 patients who came by ground and about 60,000 patients who came by air uh, to both level one and level two trauma centers. And uh, um, we used uh, multiple different statistical techniques to determine that uh, if you have similarly injured patients based on their blood pressure upon arrival, uh, how their injury severity score, their GCS, and a host of other factors, age, sex, et cetera, um, who has a better outcome? And we found that um, no matter what way you looked at it, the patients who, who came by uh, helicopter had a survival improvement of about 16% uh, increased odds of survival. And just one other methodology I'll throw out there for people who have not actually read the paper is that death on arrival was automatically excluded. So you're it, looking at right. severe in- injury, but basically not dead. <laughs> not dead, yeah, right. right. Okay. Um, Let's get into a little bit of the uh, details of the statistical analysis, although I, I'm just a poor doctor with two letters after his name, not three PhD letters after his name, so we'll keep it simple. Um, you guys use propensity scoring and multiple imputation analysis, uh, and they really do form the basis of the analysis. Just define those. What do they mean? What, what do I do with that information? Sure, sure. Uh, and thanks for bringing this up. So uh, one of the big trouble, w- troubles with using large data sets like the National Trauma Data Bank is missing data. And many times we're, we're worried about that. Now, we, we use data from 2007 to 2009 primarily because the National Trauma Data Standard had been uh, instituted by then, and the data has really gotten better 2007 onwards in the NTDB. Uh, that being said, there is uh, significant missing data in some instances, up to about 20% even in some instances. And so the question is, does that missing data impact your uh, result, right? Cause, oh, well, certain people who are really sick or certain people who may come by helicopter, they didn't have much missing data, but the ground people had more missing data, and so the helicopters people look, helicopter people look better. 
Now, what we did is that we did this imputation technique, and what you do in there is that you, for example, have uh, you know five p patients, and each patient has five pieces of data. So each patient has five things about them that we're interested in knowing, and there are five patients. And suppose that there are two pieces of data randomly that are not there. Now, if you have thousands and thousands of patients, you could pretty well predict that uh, based on uh, the information we have on hundreds of thousands of patients, that one piece of missing data should be the following, should be X. And what you do is you do this, uh, we have this great big statistical server, and we do those predictions for the missing data. And we don't do them once, we actually do them multiple times. And then we see if the results would change uh, based on how much, you know, we vary what we would put in that X. Uh, we vary it based on what the data historically suggests. And then we come up with trying to understand, well, well, if the missing data was this or was A, B, or C, what would it, what would it be? And we try to predict what, uh, what the outcome would be if we had missing data or certain proportions of missing data and so on. The real key here is the way we use this analysis. We don't say, okay, well, let's try to predict what's in the missing spots and then say, okay, uh, this is probably what it is. We don't do it that way. We actually use that as what's called a sensitivity analysis. So we do the data analysis with just the data we have. Then we do it with the imputed data set. And then we match the two. And if they both look exactly, they both look true, then we say, okay, this is probably correct and we're going to go ahead. But if they uh, differ, then we, uh, on our own, stop and say, okay, well, there's missing data. It's too big of a problem. We won't proceed with the analysis. So that's kind of a thing that we've imposed on ourselves. So that second check that you just described really allows you to use the imputed data to come up to the power that you desire. Otherwise, right. the finding would be the same, really. Right. So, yes, because if you, uh, what happens is, is that you lose a lot of data without the imputed data set. So having the imputed data set really, uh, and that's what it was really designed to do, was to um, help prevent loss of uh, data, which you're losing an entire patient just because you only don't have, you have 20 pieces of data on that person, but you don't have one piece of data. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to throw away that entire patient just because of that. Now, the second thing you asked about was propensity score matching. And I know a lot of people have been talking about this um, uh, statistical technique, which has really come into vogue over the past few years. Uh, at the simplest way of looking at, at it, propensity scoring is best in situations where there's a difference in, there may be a big difference in the two groups that you're really studying. So what we wanted to really look at is that, you know, how do you, control for, I mean, we could do logistic regression and stuff to control for the differences, uh, you know, post hoc. But how do you really control for that person who decided that, you know, this person looks a little bit sicker, uh, he probably needs to go for a helicopter. So we need to really be able to control for this uh, treatment assignment. And um, when you have a situation where there's a significant, significant potential uh, for selection bias between the groups, because, you know, there's something that this professional knows that says, you know, this guy looks a little sicker than the other guy, so let me send this guy by helicopter. You need to be able to control. So there's a potential for significant selection bias between the two groups. And that's where the propensity score weighting really, propensity score matching really makes a difference. And we did not just uh, propensity score matching, but actually we did uh, the analysis uh, three or four different ways. First, we did an unadjusted analysis. 
then we did an, an, adjust, a, an adjustment using the way that most of the previous studies have done, using uh, multiple logistic regression in which we controlled for injury severity, GCS, systolic blood pressure on arrival, um, and a host of other factors, patient age, sex, and all the things that we typically control for. Um, then we did this with some generalized linear modeling in which we used clustering for hospitals. So we thought that was also very important because, of course, you know, it's not just the helicopter, but it's like where you're taking the patient. So if the hospital has an independent effect on survival, which it probably does, we wanted to control for that as well. And we used that using GLM. And then the, um, after doing all that, then we added this other technique in which first we did propensity score weighting, and then we used uh, the multiple logistic regression as described. So we did this uh, analysis uh, multiple different ways to really understand um, as best as possible, uh, do helicopters uh, have a improved survival compared to uh, ground emergency medical transport? So that, that's an excellent, I think, uh, description. Uh, Sorry, it's a little long-winded, too. No, no, no. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, I, even I can understand it. So um, before you get to the propensity matching and the statistical analyses, just at baseline, how well were the two groups matched, the ground and the air? Well, um, uh, significant differences between the groups. Uh, you know, the ground group actually was much less severely injured. You'll see that the uh, helicopter group, on average, has a um, greater proportion of patients with very high injury severity scores. So uh, you'll see about 10% of patients had an injury severity score of uh, uh, 35 and above in the helicopter group, whereas only 5% of patients were like that in the ground group. Uh, similarly, in the uh, injury severity score 25 to 35 category, about a quarter of the patients, about 25% of patients in the helicopter group were in that category, whereas only 20% of the patients in the ground group. So the helicopter group was uh, significantly more severely injured. And that's why it, when you look at the unadjusted analysis, it's the helicopter group that has a more high likelihood of death. Yeah, and that's the point I was just uh, driving at is it's impressive to me that once you control for these baseline differences, the helicopter group actually has a lower chance of death when, when from the get-go, they really, in an unadjusted model, should be predicted to die. Right. And statistically, that's a big, big issue, right? That if you look at something on an unadjusted analysis, and then uh, if the significant goes, significance goes away, well, that's one thing. But if the results flip, then you really need to worry about, oh, well, why are my results completely flipping? And that's why you need to, just like you pointed out, go back to the baseline characteristics and we realize that, well, you know, the results probably flip because of many things. More patients with hypotension, more patients with more severely injured, more patients with head injury. And you look at those more sicker patients and you then control for these things. It turns out that no matter what way you look at them, uh, Imp uh, there's improved odds of survival when you come by helicopter. Now, the interesting thing is, is that when we just use logistic regression, or even when we use GLM and logistic regression, uh, it turns out that the improvement in odds of survival was about 30%. And this is similar to what other studies have shown. But when we really drilled down and did the propensity score weighting and so on, the odds of survival was about 16% improved. So 1.16. So still very significant, 16%. I would take that, um, but not as uh, pronounced as the previous studies had shown or, or our own uh, uh, multiple logistic regression had shown. And I mean, who knows why, but why do you think the difference? I think just because of better uh, matching using propensity scoring. And again, because propensity scoring is probably a better method to to apply in this specific situation where there's a big difference between the groups uh, as they come to the hospital. 
So that's why I think it's just a better statistical technique for this specific situation. Now, one other baseline difference you found that I think is actually relevant if one wants to talk about the role of helicopters is that the ground group was far more likely to have been shot or stabbed uh, or a fall, which is interesting, um, whereas the ground group was much more likely to have been involved in a motor vehicle collision as the mechanism of injury. Is that just a function of rural versus urban type mechanisms? Well, I think primarily you're absolutely right that, you know, uh, if you um, are, you know, shot down the street in urban Philadelphia, well, uh, it would take longer for a helicopter to come land and pick you up and take you, take you to the trauma center. So the faster way is to go by uh, uh, ground, and uh, that's why you'd see more of those in that. Uh, and then, of course, we do have to realize that it does take a while for a, I mean, there has to be some uh, distance for you to travel. Uh, for a helicopter to even improve the speed. I mean, the biggest thing we talk about with helicopters is speed, right? Uh, but if you think about it, the helicopter has to take off, go land, then typically we want to stop the rotors. I mean, sometimes we do these hot offloads and hot onloads, but typically you want to stop the rotors, which take a moment, a minute or two. Then you get the guys to come off. They go do their assessment of the patient, put the patient on and bring it back. So it takes a significant amount of time for all that to happen and then to bring the patient. So if you're only nine minutes away by ground, then why would you call a helicopter? You would just go. Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting point you raised just now because um, having looked through a bunch of different flight records uh, in Philadelphia, it seemed like no matter where the event occurred, it was half an hour from the helicopter dispatch time to helicopter arrival at the trauma center. So once you're in the air, distance really isn't much of an issue anymore um, because no matter where you were, it was half an hour. So it really kind of depended on where the event occurred as to the um, utility of air transport. Sometimes the ground provider could have gotten there, especially at like 2 in the morning, uh, much faster just by driving fast. Now, your study used um, complex statistical analysis, as we've kind of alluded to, to control for uh, multiple known confounders. But at the end of the day, it is an NTDB retrospective trial. So what are some of the limitations of the trial? Well, um, you're absolutely right. This is a uh, retrospective study, but we tried to really emulate um, the real situations on the ground, and that's why we and we've talked about the whole propensity scoring and so on. That's why it's necessary to really, if we're really going to find uh, what works, do helicopters work or not? Um, we really need to drill down and do prospective studies to understand. Just like we're talking about the speed, I mean, is it really that at a certain distance helicopters start to become beneficial? Or is it that fantastic staff? I mean, I remember uh, when I was in New York, it was literally uh, the you know the best of the best. I mean, you had to be a PICU nurse for a couple of years, and then a uh, um, I'm sorry, NICU nurse for a couple of years because you had to transport the little babies. You had to be an ER nurse and so on, and you had to be like it was like for pilots getting into the astronaut corps for uh, paramedics and nurses was it was that it was the same thing to get on the helicopter. Uh, so is it the fantastic staff? It is, or is it the amazing technology? I mean, helicopters, a lot of helicopters got glide scopes before other things got glide scopes. So is it great technology? Or is it speed? And which one is it? And can we do the same things in ground uh, and improve the same things in the ground transport and maybe get the same outcomes? That's why we need to really do good prospective studies to really understand um, uh, uh, what's better. But for now, from what we know, I think uh, helicopters seem to be doing a little bit better. But we don't know why. If it's the ground crew, it's the speed, or is it the technology? Okay. Um, 
Your study then goes one step further and even actually calculates a number needed to treat. So if we accept the fact that helicopters are better, in fact, you only have to transport 65 patients according to your trial to save one life. That's a very low number to treat. So this immediately opens up the question of how does one go about determining who needs to be transported by helicopter so as to avoid what, as you alluded to, is a very dangerous and very expensive uh, treatment modality. So when I say 65, or this number 65 that we calculated, remember this study is biased towards severely injured patients. So we're saying 65 severely injured patients, ISS 16 and above, to save a life. So now the question is, how many patients are that severely injured who get transported by helicopter? Uh, right now, you know, you have a person who has to make the call. It's a life or death call. Should I call a helicopter or not? We usually err towards calling the helicopter, especially if the weather is okay and if the distance is great. Uh, we need to improve our ability to make that call. Right now, we have paper uh, schemes and mechanisms that we make people rely on and say, okay, well, you figure out from this sheet of paper what this person looks like. The guy's still trapped in the car. You figure it out, and then you, have the, you, you decide if you're going to call for the helicopter or not. And in this day and age, we should be able to improve on that. You know, we need to make some investments in technology. And I'm not saying I know exactly what technology is, but maybe there are certain things, you know, uh, point of care, lactate monitoring, or, um, uh, you know, uh, better heart rate variability. Uh, I don't know what the right mechanism is, but we need to do some investments to figure out if we can find out who is the person who's more severely injured or more at risk of dying and who would really benefit from having the helicopter come out. I think that's really where we need to focus on. And so... The, you now and also in the paper are espousing a call for further studies, but do, do you think really a prospective or even a randomized trial is feasible in this field? Well, you don't necessarily have to do a randomized trial that, you know, for some people you're going to send a helicopter and some people you won't. I mean, that would be very difficult, right? Because most of us would uh, expect a helicopter to come if a helicopter was needed. Right. <laughs> um, in fact, uh, Somebody was asking me uh, the other day when this study came out, a reporter called and said, uh, we have been told, and I don't know what the reality is, we have been told that Representative Giffords, when she was shot in the head, was not transported by helicopter. Do you think that was a mistake and they should have transported her by helicopter? And I'm like, A, we don't even know if she what was really going on. B, I don't know how far that is. According to my friend who trained there, the safe way where she was shot wasn't that far from where she was treated. I mean, I don't know what the reality is. I've never been there. Um, so there's no way for me to comment on that. But what's important is, is that we can do certainly prospective studies of how things are being done right now and try to figure out what, where the difference lies and what makes the improvement and then go from there to really implement policy. We shouldn't be coming up with new policies willy-nilly, you know. And remember, there has never been a randomized control trial. We accepted helicopters without a randomized control trial because they seem to work. They seem to work. Uh, but there's, we can do better than that. And we don't necessarily have to do a randomized control trial. I think a prospective study of helicopter transport, especially in regions where there may be difference, differences in how uh, helicopters are used, would be very beneficial. Well, the Maryland system certainly would lend itself to that because it's, it's very well uh, anchored on uh, helicopter transport for, uh, for really its history. Um, so one last question. Do you think your study then, maybe you've already answered this, uh, do you think your study as it currently stands is robust enough to make any kind of judgment call as to whether or not helicopter transportation should be a criterion for level one status? It currently is not. Well, uh, 
before I answer that, I just wanted to make a little shout out for our state, Maryland. <laughs> uh, you know, um, we are very grateful that, um, you know, it's the uh, state police that comes to pick you up uh, if you are in a, in, a, in a crash. And we estimated that to save a life, this kind of a back-of-the-envelope calculation is about $325,000, $350,000 to save a life, which is not a lot of money if you think about, I mean, it sounds like a lot of money, uh, but if you think about hemodialysis, costs about $50,000 a year. So I know it's a little bit different. That's $50,000 per year, uh, and society is certainly committed to paying that, you know, because, we, of course, we all know patients on hemodialysis can get automatic um, uh, government-subsidized insurance. Um, so for helicopters, I mean, you'd get that in seven years of life for hemodialysis. So um, now, of course, that's not a private-based system. But remember, these helicopters that we have, I mean, they're multi-role. And they'll do homeland security, and they're up in the air. And when somebody's in a crash, they go pick them up. So is that the best system, the multi-role system? Or should we have dedicated private helicopters who go to pick up the patient? We need to figure those things out as well. We need to really do an economic analysis. So I think there are a lot of questions. What works? the staff, the speed, the technology? Um, uh, should we have the private-based system versus the more centralized system? Uh, I think those are important questions. And then coming to the question of should you be, uh, should it be the criteria for level one center? I totally disagree with that. I don't think you should because level one centers, uh, you know, do gr one of the criteria that we have for level one centers is volume. And I think if your volume comes from, for example, penetrating trauma and you're getting that volume without having to have a helicopter, uh, you should certainly be a level one center. And especially, remember, helicopters up in the air, the flight time between trauma centers, especially in urban situations, for example, we have it in, in, in Baltimore, the flight time between us and shock trauma is probably a minute. So there's, I mean, we both have helipads, but we don't necessarily need, and we ha need helipads for other reasons, we, we, we need ours, but, uh, you know, for all the kids who come and so on. But there's uh, no reason why you couldn't have one place where all the helicopters go and the rest of the trauma, the ground trauma, comes here. So it's just a matter of regionalizing and systemizing the, the, systemizing the system, if you will. Uh, well, that's actually quite analogous to, uh, to George Washington's trauma center. So we historically were uh, in our old hospital within restricted airspace uh, due to our proximity to the White House. We never had a helipad. And uh, whereas the Washington Hospital Center, um, which is, I would guess, by flight time, 30 seconds, uh, gets all the air traffic. So, um, yeah, such a, such a kind of a, a combined system does work, and maybe at the end of it all is more financially feasible than having helipads uh, scattered throughout a very small geographic area. Right. Um, well, as I said at the beginning of the uh, podcast, I think the paper caught my eye. Uh, not only did it uh, try to dispel uh, some of the uh, controversy around this topic, uh, but also the means by which the uh, the uh, study was carried out are quite robust, and um, if one really takes the time to read through the statistics, um, it's it's quite insightful as to the potential for helicopter transportation and, and outcome. Uh, I do look forward to hopefully seeing a prospective trial one of these days that will put much of this retrospective stuff to rest. We've been speaking today with Dr. Adel Hader regarding his study, which demonstrated that transportation to a trauma center by helicopter is associated with an increased odds of survival to discharge. I would like to again thank Dr. Hader for taking the time to share his views with us and commend the Hopkins Group on their ongoing research in this field. This concludes another edition of the EAST TraumaCast. For copyright information and disclaimers, please visit us at east.org. For the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, I'm Dr. Babak Sarani.